Who am I? They often tell me I come out of my cell calmly, cheerfully, resolutely, like a lord from his palace. Who am I? They often tell me I used to speak to my warders freely and friendly and clearly, as though it were mine to command. Who am I? They also tell me I carried the days of misfortune equably, smilingly, proudly, like one who is used to winning. Am I really then what others say of me? Or am I only what I know of myself? Restless and longing and sick, like a bird in a cage, struggling for breath as if hands clasped my throat, yearning for colours, for flowers, for the songs of birds, thirsty for friendly words and human kindness, shaking with anger at fate and at the smallest sickness, trembling for friends at an infinite distance, tired and empty at praying, at thinking, at doing, drained and ready to say goodbye to it all. Who am I? This or the other? Am I one person today and another tomorrow? Am I both at once, in front of others, a hypocrite, and to myself, a contemptible, fretting weakling? Or is something still in me like a battered army, running in disorder from a victory already achieved? Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, you know me, O God. I am yours. I really love this poem because even though Bonhoeffer's experience was horrible and extreme, he was actually hung in his concentration camp uh, right at the end of the war, just two weeks before the Allies came through and liberated it. And even though we must never forget as we're reading Revelation that we have brothers and sisters in Syria and Iraq and in North Korea and in many other places who experience dreadful persecution and violence for being Christian. Even though our experience is less extreme, it it really is a poem about being Christian in this world. Life in this world is life in a prison run by a tyrant. That's part of the message of Revelation. Satan has set up his rebellious throne and his tyrannical rule here on earth in opposition to God. And, And so much of this poem resonates, doesn't it? Even in comfy New Zealand. I feel that desire to appear strong and unfazed and hopeful in the face of hostility or suffering or sickness or hardship. I can be tempted to feel like I owe it to Jesus to appear to be coping in the face of such things. But on the inside, so often we we just feel weak, don't we? And and scared and trapped and battered. And we experience that, that longing and yearning and thirsting for something better. And we find ourselves asking questions like that. Who am I really? Well, this morning, as we watch Jesus open the seven seals on the scroll in God's throne room, we will see oppression and tyranny in the world in a new way. We will see it for what it is. 
and we will see what is to become of it and we will see how we can endure through it. So make sure your Bibles are open there. We're going to start at the beginning of chapter 6. Have a look at chapter 6, verse 1. I watched, John says, as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come! I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror, bent on conquest. As the the first four seals are opened, what John sees is these four coloured horses being ridden by terrible riders, and they ride out onto the earth. And this apocalyptic language is just so fantastic, isn't it? It feels like we're seeing something straight out of Mordor. And we have to remember that, actually. It's the impression that counts as much as anything here, not necessarily finding the significance of every detail. They're meant to be scary and, and imposing and oppressive. And these horsemen represent tyranny. The evil use of human power. They bring war, they bring corruption, they bring injustice and oppression. And the suffering and horrors and death that comes to people through such things. They alert us to the mysterious but real supernatural forces and realities that operate behind the scenes in the use of power in the world. This is not a picture of the future particularly. This is a description of life in this world. In our world. So often life in our world is at the mercy of power gone bad. So there's the white horse with a crown and a bow bent on conquest, we're told. And then there is the red horse who makes people kill each other and takes peace from the earth. The third horse is black with a set of scales and he brings hyperinflation. He makes a kilo of flour cost a day's wages. What's a kilo of flour? A dollar? Imagine living up a dollar a day. That, that's, that's what war does to a society, doesn't it? And of course, that's exactly how many people in poverty-stricken parts of the world live. The final horse, we're told, is pale. The word for this colour in Greek is the word chloros, from which we get the word chlorine. You know that pale, greeny, greyy, chlorine colour? It's the colour that corpses turn. And this is the death that tyranny brings. This is not the future. This is our history. And it will continue to be our story until Jesus returns. This is our age. The horrors of war and violence and corruption which go on around the world, the reign of tyranny. These horsemen are our captors. These four horsemen is why the world can feel for us and for for so many in the world it really does feel very much like being trapped in a prison and longing and yearning for a better place, a better world. I recently listened to a series of of podcasts by by this great kind of historian storyteller called Dan Carlin on World War I. Has anyone listened to Hardcore History by Dan? Um, I realised I knew very little about World War I and I, and I wanted to, and they, they're just fantastic. Anyway, he just continually paints such a dreadful picture of what life was like during World War I. He kept describing the Western Front 
as a giant meat grinder into which young men in their hundreds of thousands were being pumped in from both sides and pulverised. And the title for the podcast was Blueprint for Armageddon. And war often demands that kind of apocalyptic language for us to make some sense of it. And we could point to any number of other wars. This is our world. This is our history. It's the story of tyranny and oppression dominating. Now let me make a few comments about these horsemen. First, I think it can be a little bit hard, especially for us here in safe New Zealand, to actually believe that this is our world being described. We like to think we're pretty clever, we've made a peaceful, prosperous place to live in, and we kind of assume that if other people were as clever as us, they ought to be able to do so too, deep down. But you know what? I I reckon many people in the Roman Empire felt exactly the same way. Rome was a great, peaceful, prosperous empire for many of its citizens. But from God's point of view, God's saying, make no mistake, this is what it looks like. These horsemen. The reality was, peace and prosperity for some was secured and sustained by violence and oppression towards many others. Now, friends, we are, we are blessed here, and we should be very, very thankful. But it is probably a lot more fragile than we like to imagine, because this actually is the reality. The four horsemen ha- have been unleashed on the earth, and power can go ro- very wrong very easily and very quickly, can't it? And we, we need to be willing, actually, to consider that uncomfortable question and ask ourselves and ask our government sometimes, who, who is paying for our peace and prosperity? Secondly, these horsemen, which is to say the, the reign of evil powers and tyranny, they are not outside of God's control. That's really important. That's clear here. They are, they are released on the earth at the command of one of the four living creatures when they say, Come. They come as the seals are open, that is, as God's plan unfolds. And we're told that their authority is given. Did you notice that? Verse 2, he was given a crown. Verse 4, its rider was given power to take peace. The implication there is that the power and authority of, of human governments and institutions and other powers is, is given to them by God. Although the language is careful, isn't it? God is not mentioned as the giver of these things, which reminds us that God is not responsible for the evil that, that, that they bring. That is to say, evil and tyranny do not operate outside the sphere of God's sovereignty. And I know that raises a whole bunch of tricky questions, but it's, there's comfort in that as well. Because it means they can only go so far as God permits. And this is the third thing. We, we see glimpses here of God's mercy and grace as he continues to sustain the world and, and provide restraint on the horsemen. Oil and wine are continued to be provided even in the midst of scarcity. And in verse 8, the death and damage done by the, the fourth horseman is limited to a quarter of the earth, which is a way of saying its reign is not unchecked. They can only go so far as God permits. Ultimately, we are not at the mercy of human powers or supernatural evil, but our lives are in God's hands, and that is a great comfort. 
So that's the first four seals. When we get to the fifth seal, we see something quite different. Have a look at verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. In the fifth seal we meet the martyrs, the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. The the temporary reign of tyranny, the reign of the four horsemen, results in many martyrs. Faithful believers who have not been ashamed of Christ their Lord, even to the point of death. And we could point, couldn't we, to numerous examples of heroes of the faith from the first century through to the 21st century. People like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who were willing to suffer and die for the Lord Jesus. Christian people will always make power uneasy because we we stubbornly refuse to bow the knee to any human as our ultimate Lord, don't we? We support and believe in good government. We want to see authority used well. But we will always say to our leaders and rulers, look, your authority is given to you from God and you will be accountable to him and we will serve Jesus first and foremost, not you. And sometimes they don't like to hear that and sometimes Christians suffer for that. And the martyrs are there and they are crying out, how long, sovereign Lord? How long until you come? How long till you do what you're going to do? How long till you're going to end this reign of tyranny? How long till you're going to avenge our blood? Now, I've been thinking about these martyrs. Who who are they? They they could be literally martyrs, that special group within the people of God who have literally been killed for following Jesus. But but I I think these martyrs in heaven are a way of representing all the past generations of the people of God. These guys, they're they're our ancestors and forebears crying out before God on behalf of all God's people. And unless the Lord Jesus returns first, we will join them at our own death. For every faithful follower of Christ will find that they live a martyr's life, even if they do not die a martyr's death. Now, I don't mean a life of whinging, not that kind of martyr. We are, we are joined to Jesus, aren't we? The martyr. And we share in his death. And Jesus said to follow him is to take up your cross daily. Jesus promised that there would be persecution for every faithful follower of him. To be, a, to be a Christian is to feel not quite at home in this world and to experience the confusion and the disorientation of that and to always be longing and yearning for, for the next world. And Jesus calls every believer to not be ashamed of him, which means being willing to die for him, even if it never actually comes to that. Friends, if you find 
being a Christian in this world doesn't really present you with any kind of struggle. If you experience no hostility, no, no grief, no tension between being a citizen of the world and a citizen of heaven, if it never feels like a fight, if Bonhoeffer's anguish just doesn't resonate with you at all, then maybe you need to ask yourself, and I, and I need to ask myself, whether I'm just worldly and not really being serious about following Jesus. The Christian life is, is, a, is a martyr's life, even if it's not a martyr's death. And the point of these martyrs being here in heaven, in God's presence, is to assure us that, that God is not blind to the plight of his people and the sufferings of his people. God is not indifferent to the injustice and the violence that his people endure. He hears their prayers. There is a delay. He is waiting, and we'll see why that is in a moment. But it's not because God has forgotten or because he does not care. He sure does know, and he sure does care, and he sure will come and vindicate all who have suffered in his name. And that is what we see happening in the sixth seal. The sixth and seventh seals are a dreadful picture of the final judgment. Have a look at verse 12. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. The stars in the sky fell to earth as figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. It's a cataclysmic picture of destruction, isn't it? Earthquakes, mountains being levelled, stars crashing into the earth, islands disappearing into the sea. It's an awesome, frightening picture. We need to remember that the target of this description, this judgment, is tyranny in the world. Imagine you're Dietrich Bonhoeffer in the concentration camp and the Allies arrive two weeks earlier than they actually did. One day you, you, you wake up and you begin to hear the awesome, frightening sounds of machine gun fire and large shells exploding nearby. Soon a shell hits the, the wall of the concentration camp and reduces a section of it to rubble. These dreadful, calamitous sights and sounds are the sights and sounds of liberation, aren't they? If you're a prisoner in that camp. And look, see, look in verse 15. Who is the target of this judgment? Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals. See, it's the kings, the princes and the generals, the, those who have oppressed others and acted unjustly with power. They're the ones who are facing the wrath or the anger of the one who sits on the throne and the lamb. It is a targeted judgment to vindicate and liberate the righteous. But that's, that's where it gets interesting, doesn't it? Unsettling, actually. Because let's read on in verse 15. <coughs> then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. The rich, the mighty, and everyone else. 
You see, you don't have to be Hitler or Stalin or Pol Pot or some other despot to participate in the tyranny and oppression, do you? In fact, those tyrannical instincts, they, they are human instincts. It's called sin. And mostly we're only limited by the limited power that we have. And the power that we do have, we're more than capable of using in self-serving and damaging ways, aren't we? We spend our money without much thought for the conditions of the people who make our stuff. We don't speak up like we should when uh, people are oppressed or our government acts in cruel ways. We fail to reach out and include people on the margins of society. We all participate in the oppressive ways that the world operates. So where does that leave me? Is Jesus coming to liberate me? Or is he coming to destroy me? Well, we need to read on into chapter 7. Where we have this, this great pause in between the sixth and the seventh seals and an explanation of why there is a delay. Why there is a delay between seals 1 to 5, life as we know it, and the final judgment in seals 6 and 7. Have a look at Chapter 7, verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Or look down in verse 3. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Why the delay? Well, you see, God is waiting for every one of his servants to be sealed with the sign that they belong to him. And then John hears something else and sees something. He hears about 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel, which I think is a symbolic way of describing a great and complete army of God's people. And then he sees something stunningly beautiful. Read verses 9 and 10. After this I looked... And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and they were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. He sees this great multitude. They're wearing white robes and they're holding palm branches. They're welcoming the King. For them, his arrival is good news, liberation, salvation. Who are they? Where did they come from? How can I be one of them? Well, look at verse 13. One of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Friends, the reason why there is a delay, the reason why evil has not yet been crushed, is because God is assembling this great multitude of his people. This great multitude who will be rescued from the tribulation on the day of judgment. 
this great multitude who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb and made them white. What a, what a beautiful picture of how Jesus' death for us actually purifies us. And our sins and our rebellions and our participations in the evil of the world can actually be taken away by his death for us. Are you one of that great multitude? Are you one of them? You need to be. You need to align yourself with Jesus through allegiance to him and trust in him. You need to wash your robe in his blood if that day is to be good news for you. And you you need to be in order to survive life in this oppressive world as well, actually. You need to know that he who sits on the throne will shelter you with his presence, in verse 15. You need to be confident that those longings and yearnings we have are sure hopings for something real. Never again will you hunger, verse 16. Never again will you thirst. You need to know that though we might feel sometimes like a battered army running in disorder, our victory has already been achieved. You need to know what Dietrich learned. Whoever I am and whatever happens to me, you know me, O God, I'm yours. You need to know, verse 17, that the lamb at the centre of the throne will be your shepherd. And there's a nice irony there that repays pondering. And he will lead you to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from your eyes. Well, I thought thought I'd conclude by reading another poem, a psalm this time, my favourite psalm actually. This is Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her, She will not fall. God will help her at the break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done. The desolations he's brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Yeah, how do we decide what we do at church? Um, So I I think I made that decision. Yeah, I think so. Um, But to be honest, this year has been largely... um, a bit of a discussion between Ben and I as to what he's uh, done work on in the past and what, um, and kind of a reconciliation of that with what I think is important for us to do. Uh, so partly we're doing Revelation because 
As a church, we'd never really touched on anything uh, eschatology, kind of end times-y. Um, and also, Ben had done some stuff in Revelation, and so while we've got Ben here with us for this year, and while my capacity's been a little bit limited, that's how we decided. Um, so, slightly less profound than probably what you were hoping for. Um, but as a, as a general principle, so uh, in, a, in a week and a half's time, we're going to go away for a staff retreat, and we're going to plan the calendar for next year, and maybe even the year after that. And I generally try and think about, uh, we want to listen to the whole Word of God, we don't want to have some part as off-limits that we're never going to tackle because it's too hard or too difficult. We want God to speak uh, to us. And so, as a general rule, I think there's four terms in the year if we do a gospel, an epistle, an Old Testament book, and we make sure we hit up some sort of thematic thing, then that's that's good coverage, um, and we try not to repeat stuff we've done in recent past. So that's how we do it. Um, so we're not just going to always do the New Testament. We're not going to spend, like, 24 months trudging our way through um, one particular book at an incredibly slow rate. Um, yeah, so that's how we do it. Yeah, so why, why did God unleash the, the four horsemen? Um, that, that's a really great question. Um, I, I think the way it's described is, is helps us to ad- identify the four horsemen with um, e- evil, tyrannical power in the world but also to recognise that they're within God's sovereignty and not outside of his control. So there's a, that, that's why they're described as being sent and given their authority from God, to remind us that even though evil's at large in the world, evil does not operate outside of God's control. We're not ultimately at the mercy of evil. Ultimately, God, we're in God's hands and he will win in, win in the end. Um, and also to com- comfort us with the with the knowledge that God knows and cares what we what life's what life's like for us, um, so I, I, th- I think that's the reason why they're described in the way we are in the way they are to um, show us that they're under within God's power, even though they are evil. Now that raises bigger questions about how God God's world could have evil in it. Um, they're really tricky questions. From the way Revelation would answer that question, though, I think is to say. Um, well, God, God cares heaps about evil in the world and he's declared war on it and this is what's going to become of it in the end. Um, and and that, that's the thing that in the end is what Christians cling to as we live in this world. Does that answer your question? Okay, pleasure. More questions? Yep, Sue. So. It's more of a, just a bit on your take on this, but... Um, I heard a few years ago that um, in, a, in a, another message that the revelation letters to the churches were actually represented in history as church ages and that uh, we're currently therefore in the church age of Laodicea. That's getting dangerously close to a sermon I preached, right? Um, so I guess I should answer that one. Um, I've not heard that before. Um, I think that's... I'd, I'd struggle because that's so concrete. Like, we do know these churches were there. And one of the interesting things about these particular things is that there's there's stuff in these letters to these churches that would have been very unique to their circumstances. Um, I can't remember exactly off the top of my head in particular. If you can pick one out, Ben, uh, you're onto this as well. But, for example, like... Um, if, if, if Wellington was one of these churches, it would have been something like, 
I know that you suffer the many winds of false teaching. Kind of, Wellington is a windy place. There's stuff in these letters that picked up real historical situations that these churches found themselves in. Um, and, and so I guess there's a real concreteness to those particular churches. So I think the way that they work is that they are particular words to particular churches at a particular place in time, but they also are to the seven churches, to all of the church. Um, so, uh, and, and that's for all time. Yeah, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I'd, I'd go, how do, you dis, how do you discern which age is which church? And that doesn't seem obvious from the text. Um, and yeah, I think, yeah, yeah, it, it just becomes, it becomes a bit speculative in my mind um, to go too far that way. Um, but yeah, we are we, we are living in the Laodicea age. We're also living in the Philadelphia age and the uh, Sardis age, and yeah, we're living in all of those. Like it, it's relevant for all churches for all time. And I think it's a really dangerous thing actually to go. Well, that 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 issue in that church is is not our issue and never be our issue and can't be our issue because it's from a previous age. I think I think you really run the risk of shutting your ears to a particular part of God's word. That I mean, we, history comes like I'm not saying. Like there's history repeats itself, and kind of who's to say what, you know, who's to say what was true of when I grew up in primary school when there was still the Cold War going on? Who's to, and that now seems so far behind us. Who's to say that 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 sort of thing isn't going to happen again? And so the, the historical circumstances that seem so distant to our world at the moment may never repeat. Uh, I think you get into tricky, yeah, unhelpful places there. Any other questions? Yeah, so after the seven seals, there's going to be the seven trumpets, and then there's going to be seven creatures, and then seven bowls. Um, so there's a lot of judgment still to come. Um, so the, the question is, is this a sequence of judgment events, um, building up to a big climax right at the end, or, which is my view, um, are we seeing the same judgment from different perspectives. So I think the reason it's presented as it is is because that's the way John saw it, um, but that doesn't mean that's how it corresponds to the historical timeline. Um, I think the whole apocalyptic genre leads you to think uh, it probably doesn't need to map quite that neatly, and I think seal six and seven are quite obviously the final judgment. They're, that, that's that's as cataclysmic as it gets, um, and trumpet seven is similar, and bowl seven is similar. So um, for that reason, I think we're being given different angles. I think at the, the Wednesday night thing, it's like you know looking at Mount Ruapehu from different sides. You get a different view, but it's the same mountain. Uh, it's a bit like that. So the, 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 the four cycles of seven are layered on top of each other, not, not kind of extending one after another. I think we probably have time for one more. That's a great question. I was hoping someone would ask about the 144,000. So there's, there's two, two views about who these 144,000 are. Well, two, two that I think are worth uh, paying attention to. Um, the first is that they represent kind of the Old Testament people of God and then the great multitude that John sees just after them from every nation, tribe and language are the New Testament people of God. Um, and so the, the combined picture of, is of the whole people of God together. Um, the other view, which I, I think I favour slightly, although I'm, I'm a bit on the fence, is that these are two ways of describing the whole people of God. Um, 
One reason why I think that is because the way it's described, John hears about 144,000 being called out um, and then he looks and what he sees is the great multitude from every tribe, language and people. So I, I wonder whether he's seeing that, he's seeing the group that were roll called um, and then, oh, the surprise is it's not, it's not just Jews, it's the whole, the whole church. Um, the, the other reason I think it is because the way the, the, the 12,000 from every tribe, it's kind of presented, if you've read some of the Old Testament, you'll find all the time there's these like roll calls of Israel, like usually in order to work out how many men there are to fight in the army. So I think it's a way of, of picturing the people of God as, as a bit of an army. That, that's the point of that 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe picture. And just that refrain of hearing and seeing, like that, that those two words, those two ideas coming together a lot in Revelation. Like I hear about something and then I saw it, or I saw something and I heard about it. Correct. So um, back in chapter 5, um, John heard about the line of Judah coming and then he looked and saw the slain lamb. Um, they're the same person, right? That's both Jesus being described in different complementary ways. And so I wonder whether the same thing, hearing about the 144,000 and then seeing the great multitude is a similar way of giving us two, a juxtaposition of two different descriptions of God's whole people. Yeah. So when the Jehovah's Witness knock on your door, that's the answer. Um, or better, when they knock on your door, just flick back two chapters and read chapters four and five with them where they see God being worshipped and then Jesus, the Lamb, being worshipped as God. And then ask them about that. Um, yeah. Any last questions that we could give a quick answer to? No one's burning. Yep. Grace. The way the way the twelve tribes get counted is sometimes a bit different in different occasions. Sometimes Levi gets left out. This is like in the Old Testament because Levi never got a land allocation. Sometimes um, Joseph gets split up into his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and then if you leave Levi out, you still get 12. The, the concern is usually to make sure it adds up to 12. Because um, that, that's... that's <laughs> so I, don't, I don't actually know the answer, but um, and I don't know why Dan didn't get a mention, but um, I, I know there is some variation. 